Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. And today, we're going to be taking a look at a video from Rationality Rules, Stephen Woodford, as he tries and fails to understand the story of the Bible. Stick with us. So in the video that we're going to be looking at today, um, I'm a bit shocked. And honestly, I, I, I've said before that I like Stephen Woodford as a person. He seems like a friendly guy, um, particularly when I've watched his casual conversations with people. Um, I, I found him to be uh, uh, charitable, friendly, nice, but um, I expected more from Rationality Rules than what I saw in this video. Now, um, as I begin, let me also say that I recently received a comment from someone on a video that I did with Jonathan Pritchett, where we responded to 78, or began responding to 78 questions that a atheist has for a Christian, uh, Hemet Meta. And what I noticed was someone responded and said, uh, Braxton, none of this convinces me. These aren't convincing arguments for the truth of Christianity. And so I wouldn't think that I would have to make a statement like this, but I'm going to make a statement because this video is similar. In this video and in that video, what I'm not doing is presenting reasons why you should be a Christian or arguments for the truth of Christianity. We have that all over this channel. We have um, a playlist uh, for God's existence, a playlist for the resurrection of Jesus, and playlists for uh, alternative religions and all kinds of other things. But there's another side to Christian defense, and that is Christian defense. Whenever someone presents things they see as problematic for Christianity, incoherences, um, logical problems within the Christian faith, we respond by explaining why those aren't logically contradictory, why you've misunderstood what's going on, or what is actually going on. And so for that reason, uh, not everything that we do on a Christian apologetics channel is an argument for the truth of Christianity. Sometimes it's responding to, albeit in this case, very, very informal arguments against the truth of Christianity. So that's what's going to be going on here, and I want you to know that going in. Uh, maybe that'll help in the comments section. Probably not. But uh, we're going to begin looking at a video where Stephen Woodford tries to present, at first, a parody of the biblical narrative beginning in the garden and ending with uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, it's there are some major problems with this parody, and I think that you'll even see those yourselves as we walk through it. But then uh, he does some commentary, gives some specific commentary, so I know that I'm not misunderstanding what he's saying. And the commentary also requires response. So we're going to jump right in, but I think what you're going to see is that uh, the story... Now, by the way, I also want to say this. Whenever it is the case... I've said for many years that one of the first things I do in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone who's an atheist is, or a Muslim or whatever else is have them explain to me what they understand the Christian message to be. Uh, not, not a dissertation, just maybe in a paragraph of us talking. Uh, tell me what you understand the, the thrust of the Bible, the story of the Bible to be, and the Christian message. And the reason I do that is because invariably... Uh, atheists and skeptics that I've run into, and sometimes they'll get it right, but many times you get something like this. Now, whether they really understand the truth of what's being said and they are trying to add the, the sort of mockery and flair that for comedic purposes or to show how silly they think it is, or whether they genuinely don't understand is difficult to tell. In, in case like this, I think there's mockery and there's um, a lack of familiarity with what's actually going on in the biblical narrative. So um, that's very important. When you're talking to a skeptic, when you're talking to an atheist, when you're talking to a Muslim, when you're talking to a Mormon, ask them to explain to you what they understand the gospel message to be. That will help a lot whenever you're responding. So let's jump right in and let's hear what Woodford has to say. 
This is Luna and this is Eowyn, and they are sisters who love each other dearly. Most of the time, at least. I mean, they're sisters. Anyhow, before Eowyn was born, Luna had an adorable finger-painting experience. Her father laid out a sheet of paper, placed her upon it, and gave her the most colourful of paints, and he said it was good, which is a tad arrogant, but, you know, no one's perfect. He then said on to her, because he spoke weirdly, Luna, my child, you can paint on any inch of this paper, but you are not to spill paint beyond it. Luna, however, was a baby. She was too young to understand. Duh. In acute rage of excitement, she then did the unthinkable. She got paint on the damn floor. Ugh. Her father then smiled warmly, let out a heartful chuckle, and said unto himself, You know, I'm not sure what I was thinking putting you in this room, Luna. I could have just put you in the kitchen where the tiles are much easier to clean. <laughs> oh, aren't you just adorable, my sweet, innocent child? Okay, now a couple of things I want to say about this. Uh, number one, there are some serious problems with the analogy. Now, it's true that no analogy is perfect, and so for that reason, we want to make sure that we're not attacking the the we're not attacking the analogy, but the point of the analogy. But in this case, I think that the problem with the analogy is substantial. So there are a couple of problems. First of all, um, when we're talking about Adam and Eve, however you understand that story, we are not talking about children. Now, they're often painted as children because they were the first humans in, in, in as far as the biblical narrative goes they're the first humans to have ever existed and so for that reason they um, didn't have a lot of the acquired knowledge that we have over the centuries and from other people and things like that so they must have been very childlike uh, but here's here's something to keep in mind there's a serious difference between a baby as we just saw pictured on the screen and human adults whether whether they were created Two days ago, they are created in adult human bodies with fully formed human brains uh, and much higher cognitive function, such that they can have conversations with God and understand information that's being given to them. That's a big thing to point out. And part of the idea of placing a, ch placing a baby uh, as the stand-in for Adam and Eve or Eve or whatever is to point out that, look, look how cute and innocent. And this father is, is treating this little baby. Well, why are you feeling that way? Because babies don't have that level of cognitive ability, but adult humans do. Again, even if you think they were born two days ago, uh, their brains are fully formed. They're able to have conversations. They're able to understand certain things. Um, even if they don't have the experiential knowledge of sin and suffering and death, they can still have the, uh, the, the intellectual knowledge of, the, of what those things are and that those things are bad and all that. Secondly, in the picture, and this is a fine point, but I'm going to make it, is you notice that the, the, the tree in the garden, which is one tree in presumably a massive garden um, compared to a, a spot of paper on the ground on which the child is sitting, and then the vast majority of the space outside of the paper is what's not supposed to be touched. So in the one case, in the one analogy, you've got adult humans with cognitive abilities who are not allowed to do one tiny thing in a vast garden where they can do lots of other things um, versus uh, a baby without the structured cognitive capacities of an adult sitting on a small, relatively, you know, small piece of paper and the vastness of the uh, ground around it is what it's not supposed to get paint on. Uh, this is kind of an important thing to point out. Secondly, 
why is it? This is the most one of the most typical things that we get from atheists is, look, God clearly, this was all a setup, and we're going to see more indication of that in just a little bit. But clearly this was all a setup because if he didn't want them to sin, he obviously wanted them to sin. This was all a trap because if he didn't want them to sin, all he had to do was not put the tree in the garden. Now, I've said this on this show before. I'm going to say it again now. There were two trees in the midst of the garden. There was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Why is that relevant? They were allowed to eat from the tree of life. They were not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The reason that this is relevant is because uh, the Bible tells us elsewhere that what God wants is for us to love our neighbor as ourselves and love the Lord our God. Now, in order for it to be genuine, real, bona fide love, there has to be the capacity to say no thank you to that love. There has to be an opportunity to sacrifice the no thank you, the thing that, that would destroy the love. There has to be the ability to sacrifice that for the good of the relationship, for the good of the other. And so the, re the tree was important there. If the whole setup is that we have love, then you have to have the choice to go against what your love wants. What, what Go against the obedience, go against the commitment and to choose for yourself instead of choosing for another. This is why sacrifice is such an important role in the, the structure of the Bible, even though that's going to be glibly uh, brushed aside later by Stephen. Sacrifice is so important because it's the idea of giving up something for the good of, the, of another out of love. That's the only way you get real love is with real sacrifice. The only way you get real love and real sacrifice is with the ability to choose between sacrificing and being obedient or being disobedient and serving self. So in order for the relationship between God and man to be genuine, you had to have the tree in the garden. That's just the way, or something like the tree. And because God is so loving and so benevolent, he just gives us, he just gave them one small thing that they weren't allowed to do that they could sacrifice for their relationship of love with him. Does Stephen see that? No, Stephen sees uh, a father, uh, a rather dumb father, and um, a uh, cognitively inept baby, and a massive number of things the child can't do. In other words, a massive amount of floor that the child can't get paint on, and only one little thing the child is stuck having to do because uh, the father is boneheaded and witless. This is not just to attack the analogy this is to attack the point, the point of the analogy, and the analogy fails at every turn. But it allowed us to explain something very important about the story of the Bible that Stephen gets wrong. And that is that this is all about love. The tree is in the garden because of love, because it allows for the ability to choose to serve someone else instead of serving self. And I think that is very, very important. All right, let's move on to the next thing. Except no, not really. Bad girl, he bellowed. What is this that thou hast done? Because Now watch what just happens here. Watch what just happens here. The Lord God said, so he says, what is it that thou hast done? Now there's a bit here in the middle that gets overlooked. See if you can note it because Stephen has the father still talking to the daughter. Thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. Honestly, I don't really know what he had against specifically cattle. He's a bit of a weird bloke. Probably has a repressed bone vine fetish, but that's just my guess. He continued. Thou belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat for the days of thy life. He then snatched the paper and paints from under Luna, cast her outside of his home, and watched from a distance as she struggled to survive. Okay, 
notice that what Steve, I mean, it's on, it's on the screen. Look here. He says that he has the father talking to the daughter in his parody and he has the father saying to her, let's, let's hear it again. Let's, let's hear this again. Done this bad girl, he bellowed. What is this that thou hast done? Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. Thou belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat for the days of thy life. He then snatched the paper and paints from under Luna and outside. Notice, Stephen thinks that uh, clearly that the statement that is made by God about crawling on your belly and eating dust is a statement to the woman. On the, on the screen, look at the screen, on the screen, the thing you have on the screen, the passage says, what hast thou done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And the Lord said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. I mean, I don't know. This is perhaps the biggest blunder of one of the biggest blunders. It's probably the biggest blunder of the entire video is that he has God saying this harsh thing about crawling on your belly and eating dust to the woman when that's clearly to the serpent. What is the parallel for the serpent in the parody? There's not one because rationality rules clearly thinks that this is a statement made to the woman. I mean, the difficulty with, with, I mean, it's number one, it's on the screen. Number two, it's all in one chapter. You just read the chapter. Number three, you could simply open up the YouVersion Bible app and you don't even have to read it. You can have the YouVersion Bible app read it to you so that you can hear that this is talking about the serpent and not about the woman. I mean, th this is one of those examples of I had come to expect more than this out of rationality rules. But let's keep, let's keep going. ...of his home and watched from a distance as she struggled to survive. All right, watch from a distance as she struggled to survive. But then what happens later? Us, Eowyn was born. And while holding her tiny, precious hand, the father got serious. He said unto Eowyn, Blood of my blood, just as sin came into the world through one messy child, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, including you, little one. And he then cast Eowyn to the streets because of her sister's crime of spilling a bit of paint. Upon the streets, Luna soon found Eowyn, which their father tried to take credit for because it was a good thing. And then the two sisters endured a very hard couple of years, which their father did not try to take credit for because it was a bad thing. But eventually, thanks to Luna's sharp wits and the evolved empathy of older apes, they found themselves a safe and stable environment in Foster's home for children whose parents have imaginary friends. They did not live happily ever after, however, as their father kept sending them letters in which he threatened, lovingly, he insists, to infinitely torture them for Luna's spilling the paint. But the two girls didn't care, for they were strong. A few years later, their father had yet another... Okay, we're going to come back to this in a minute. Um, this gets kind of rambly. I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly some of the fine points because he's distorted the story... He's distorted the story, number one, but then he's also made it two sisters instead of Adam and Eve, and then it's clear that, um, that this Eowyn, this sister that is born second, uh, represents, I guess, humanity um, after the fall... And how Luna, who is supposed to be the individual Adam, comes and helps Eowyn to uh, 
to, to figure out how to live in light of this terrible father. But the father keeps plaguing them with these letters talking about infinite punishment. We're going to come back to that. Um, this, is, this is just me trying to, trying to follow this. Another child, Akara, and in a moment of clarity, in the reflection of her beautiful eyes, he saw the folly of his ways. What have I done if, he said unto himself, I am a terrible father. I must apologize to Luna and Eowyn at once, and whether they find it in their heart to forgive me or not, I must love them with all of my heart for the rest of my days. But then he had another great idea. I've got it, he gasped. I could forgive them by torturing and crucifying my newborn, Akara. Of course, why didn't I think of this before? It's so obvious. I'm, I'm so moral and so loving and perfect and oh my god, I'm touching... Okay, so here we have uh, uh, the parody goes on to address, obviously, Jesus coming to die for the sin of the world. Now, what is wrong with the parody? Let's attack the analogy, uh, the, the point of the analogy and not the analogy. The point of the analogy is it would be horrible for a human father who has two children who he's already been very cruel to, one because she got paint on the floor and the other because the sister got paint on the floor, um, and now with this, he has another child and what he's going to do to absolve them of their sin is to kill this third child on a cross. He, he kind of got lazy with the analogy there and just went straight for the cross. Um, but here's, here's the problem with this is yes, I agree. That would be wicked. And Christian parents don't think anything of the sort is, should be done in our lives. The thing is that the human fathers are not the perfect standard of justice Human children are not co-eternal and pre-existent with God the Father in uh, in the Trinity, and of, so the whole the whole thing just breaks down. It doesn't make sense of what's actually going on. What's actually going on is you have father a father God who is the creator of all things. He is the perfect standard of justice, right? He must act justly. Human fathers don't even have this perfect notion. We don't even, we never function perfectly justly, nor can we bring perfect justice to our children. But with God, because he is perfectly just and perfectly loving, we're stuck with a little bit of a situation here. When individuals sin, there has to be a punishment for that sin or else God is not maximally just. And everyone listening recognizes that justice is a good thing. No matter what kind of analogies you want to create, this is the thing I always go back to because I think it makes the point really well. If we captured Adolf Hitler after World War II, should we just give him a hug and let him go because we're so loving? No, no, we shouldn't, should we? No, what? That, in fact, that would be bad, right? We would all think it was bad if we just hugged him and let him go. No, there has to be some punishment. There has to be some penalty. Why? Because there has to be some sense of justice done. It would be cruel to the Jews. It would be cruel to the citizens of the world if there was not some justice brought. And the authorities would not be good if some justice was not brought. And so for that reason, we would bring the justice. Now, if God is maximally just, then there has to be some penalty brought for any sin. Right, And when we sin against an everlasting being who is holy and just maximally, it is an, the penalty, whether you don't think it's that big of a deal or not, is an everlasting penalty if we're going to have that perfect um, equality of justice in, in God. Right, So God must punish sin justly and everlastingly. So what do you do there? 
Well, what we've got to do is we've got to find a way to do that. But because God's all loving, God's also going to find a way to display that maximal love. So he doesn't take a child that just that, that was just given birth to that's a little innocent, um, a cara or whatever, and then put her on a cross, a little baby on a cross. I mean, this is a gross misrepresentation of what the gospel is. Instead, the um, pre-existent Jesus is sent forth to live a human life and die on our behalf. Why is that important? Because in doing that, an everlasting, perfectly holy and just individual dies and takes the penalty for uh, an everlasting, perfectly and holy, just God on the part of the sins that were committed against that everlasting, holy and just God. And so that, that, uh, that, um, uh, Penal substitutionary atonement that Jesus uh, takes on our behalf, uh, accomplishes on our behalf, allows for us to escape having to live out this um, everlasting penalty. Now, later on, Stephen brings in this whole thing about Christopher Hitchens talking about how it's wrong. To, uh, it's not even possible to take an individual. I don't, I don't know why Christopher Hitchens thinks he can make these rules instead of God, but it's, it's impossible for one person to take on the sins of another person and pay that penalty on their behalf. Well, you can if the sins are the sins done by mankind as a corporate group. And then Jesus, as the corporate uh, head, pays that price for the corporate group, that's still man paying for the sins of man. It's just, it's just simple as that. I don't see any problem with this, but to use babies and to use sisters and to use children that are born and didn't previously exist as stand-ins for a pre-existent everlasting God, um, it, it's just to mock this rather than to make any salient point. The fact is, God is a God of maximal justice and maximal love. If you plug those two things in, guess what isn't weird at all anymore? Something like the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on behalf of the sin of the world isn't weird at all because an, uh, an ultimate everlasting punishment has to be paid because God's just and wouldn't be just as just or as good if he didn't punish sin justly. But then because he's a God of maximal love, he provides a way by giving uh, his son pre-existent and eternal to die for the sin of the world. Now you can say, I don't buy any of that. And that's perfectly fine to go ahead and believe whatever you want to believe. Remember, this is not, this video is not an argument for the truth of Christianity. This is a response to criticisms that fail fabulously against Christianity. If you plug in God's justice and God's love, what you get is a story of the cross that makes perfect sense. But if you make an analogy with babies and sisters and cuteness and wiggling around and paint on the floor, then yeah, you, of course it looks crazy because every Christian parent thinks that sounds crazy because no Christian parent is ultimately just and their children are not pre-existent and all these kind of things like what we're talking about now. All right, uh, let's move on and let's see what happens next. I think I may have already gotten to this, but let's, let's see. What you've just seen, as given away by the annotations, is a parody of the morally bankrupt Christian doctrine of original sin. That is, the abominable notion that a child, you, can inherit the sins of another, Adam and Eve. And yet, whilst I've had a me maliciously fun time depicting the depravity of this teaching, and hopefully it's at least given you a smile, I now want to get a lot more serious. And so, please forgive the change of tone. According to the Christian narrative, God created man, gave him a garden, told him not to do something, and then created women to get man to do that something, 
Well, she's, whoop, hold up a second. Where is this coming from? Where is this idea coming from that God gave, uh, created woman to get man to do that something that he was commanded not to do? Nowhere in the text of scripture. Say, well, yeah, but he knew that would happen. Okay, that's a subject for a different day. God's foreknowledge of things doesn't mean that he wants the things to happen that end up freely being done by his creation. He didn't give man woman so that she would mess up and do this. Now, Adam tried to use that as an excuse. So really, the one who looks bad here is man. The story of the Bible, throughout the Bible, when this story is referred to, it's the man who is held culpable. It's the man who is responsible for this sin, putting the heavy burden on the man. There is an example where Paul talks about how the woman was deceived, but I think it's fair game to say that the woman was deceived in light of the fact that the man is held responsible for this throughout Scripture. Let's hear what else we have. Which is just one of the countless examples of Christianity's deep disdain for half the human race. Deep disdain for half of the human race by continually holding Adam responsible instead of Eve for this action. And in response to this transgression, God cast man and woman from the garden and cursed them to eat of the ground for the days of their lives, and additionally cursed women to have very severe childbearing. But he didn't stop there. Oh no, his misogyny had only just got started. What misogyny? Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee, effectively rendering half the human race as cattle. And I say half the human race because, of course, according to Christianity, all... Okay, we're going to come back to this because he's about to make a huge blunder, a logical blunder in just a moment. But first of all, where is the misogyny in this passage? Now remember... The garden is one thing. This is the curse after the fall. And after the fall, what do we see? For man, man is going to have to go out and work the field outside of the garden where he's never encountered these thorns and thistles that now he's going to have to step on and work. It's not like there's just a, a curse that impacts the woman. It's a curse that impacts the man too. He's going to have to go out and work the field and thorns and thistles and all the labors and all those kind of things. And there is a curse on the woman that she's going to have great pain. He's going to multiply her pain in childbirth. Now, um, where's the misogyny in that? Where's the misogyny in that? In fact, we can actually go a step further. The means by which these things are going to happen is that he's denying them access to the garden, which is the punishment for their sin. Why is that the punishment? Well, the Bible tells us right there in chapter three that if they were allowed to stay in the garden, that they wouldn't be they would be able to eat of the tree of life, the tree that they should have been eating from all along, and would then live forever. By the way, if you go to the other end of the Bible in the last book last chapter of Revelation, you find that the tree of life is going to be in the new heavens on the new earth. Interesting. It's the uh, Eden is the archetype for heaven. So if you're thinking of something like, um, Mount Olympus from Disney's Hercules, where people are walking around on clouds. That's not exactly the picture we get from scripture. It's going to be a new heaven on a new earth and the tree of life is going to be there. However, you understand the tree of life. Now that's the punishment is they can't have access to the tree of life, which means they have to leave the garden. Now, because they're outside of the garden, it's just the way it is that they're going to encounter thorns and thistles and the woman's pain is going to be greatly increased in childbirth. Now, I'm not sure what it might have been about the garden that prevented that extreme pain in childbirth. Uh, maybe it's just not being in the presence of God directly in the same way. Nevertheless, these are the natural consequences of your sin. There's nothing misogynistic about this. 
And the thing that he thinks represents misogyny, I think most directly, is that it says to the woman as part of the curse, not as a part of the wonder of God's plan for humanity, but as a part of the curse is your desire shall be to to your husband and he will rule over you. And what that means is that the woman is going to, in a sinful fallen world, now with the knowledge of good and evil that they brought on themselves, the woman is now going to be in a position, the man is going to be an authoritarian figure and not a perfect one. And the woman is going to resent that and desire that position of authority for herself. You say, but that still represents a a situation where the man has that authority. Well, you know what? We live in a world today where because of medical advancements, the pain in childbirth isn't near what it was. Now, women, I understand, ladies, that it is still horrific. I have two human children, and I was there when they were born, and I understand it's still horrific, but we have come up with medical advancements that um, allow that not to be as horrific as it would have been in previous generations and certainly during um, the time of Moses, the time of the Israelites, or the time of the captivity, or any time in human history prior to this. In the same way, we now, in our culture, think of men and women and their relationship in marriage uh, in, in more of an equality. Now, um, most of your conservative Christians will still say, if you have two individuals, they should consult, they should talk with each other about this, but ultimately there's got to be a tiebreaker, and we both have our positions of submitting to each other and all that thing, and the Bible teaches that we submit to one another and all those sorts of things. But what I want you to recognize is this was not, this is not God saying, here's my ideal. This is a part of the curse of which comes on man because they're no longer, they no longer have access to the garden and thereby the tree of life. So this, there is no misogyny here. The misogyny is imported by someone who wants to mock the faith rather than read the Bible and comment on what it says. Uh, And in terms of reading the Bible and commenting on what it says, that does require a basic level of understanding of hermeneutics. But anyway, let's keep trucking and see what else he says. Now, he's just said the reason that this hating of half of humanity, which makes absolutely no sense, the reason that this spills over onto us is because we also in, in experience this curse. Let's hear what he says, because you're about to see him um, make an equivalence between two things that are not equivalent. Will humans inherit this curse? You me and everyone else are guilty of Adam and Eve's sin of eating from a tree. Notice what he just said. He said, we all experience this curse. You and me and everybody else are guilty of Adam and Eve's sin. Now, he he brushes past this as though it's just a given, but is experiencing the ramifications of something someone else did, the same thing as you being personally culpable and guilty for what someone else did? Is that the same thing? If 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 we were um, if we had the only uh, storehouse full of food left on planet Earth, and I burn it down, and you no longer have access to it, the fact that you now don't get to eat the food that's in that storehouse does that mean you're guilty of my crime of burning down the storehouse? We experience the ramifications of what Adam and Eve did. And that is perfectly realistic. I don't know what fairy tale understanding of Christianity uh, rationality rules has been raised with or taught or picked up from culture or preachers or whatever. But the, the fact is, it's not necessarily the case that just because we are experiencing the ramifications of what someone else did, that means that we are personally guilty. Um, 
the, the, the reality is this is very realistic. It's much more realistic than what he's putting forth as being fair or unfair or anything like that. If parents do things that cause their children suffering and it's not the children's fault, parents that, that uh, engage in certain drugs or alcohol abuse, they sometimes have children that have those addictions and those dependencies from birth. It's not the child's fault. It's the parent's fault, and we all understand that, and nobody holds the child guilty because it's experiencing the ramifications of what its parents did. Now, is it true that some Christians do think that we get a sin nature and a guilt nature from Adam and Eve? Yeah, it's true, and Rationality Rules is going to uh, show us some some cherry-picked examples of preachers saying exactly that. But it, but But let me just explain this. This Augustinian understanding that what we get from Adam and Eve is a sin nature and a guilt nature. A sin nature is we inherit, and by the way, this is the language of the Southern Baptist Convention's uh, Baptist Faith and Message 2000. The Southern Baptist Convention is still the largest non-Catholic uh, denomination. And what they say is a what we get from Adam and Eve is a nature and an environment inclined towards sin. And that is absolutely the case. We inherit a nature and an environment inclined towards sin because of what Adam and Eve did. You can't get the toothpaste back in the bottle. They began a chain reaction of a sinful world where we have now murder and pornography and um, uh, you know rape and all kinds of horrible, horrible things. We have billboards that I can't drive down the road without uh, some billboard advertising insurance to me using a scantily clad woman. We have a nature and an environment that is more inclined to sin because of what Adam and Eve did. But that is a different thing from whether we have a guilt nature, whether we are personally held guilty of Adam's sin. There are Christians that believe that, but not all Christians believe that, nor do I think it's clearly taught in the Bible. In fact, let me just give you an example of why many Christians don't think that it's taught in the Bible. Because perhaps you'd say, well, you're reinterpreting the Bible to say whatever you want. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20 says this, now listen closely. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So unless you want to do some kind of strange exegesis to, to try and say that... Uh, the Bible contradicts itself and, you know, that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, but that um, this means something other than what it flatly says. You're going to have to understand that God may hold us to have a sin. We may have a sin nature that's just the ramifications of what our parents did, but that is a different thing than whether we are held personally culpable and guilty for what our original parents did. That is just some Augustinianism that has gotten stuck in some people's craw, but is not, I don't think, clearly taught in Scripture. Are you going to find Christians that say that? Yeah. But now you might say, but Braxton, because we think the Bible is bunk, why would we care what Ezekiel says later? It may be that what the author of Genesis says is at odds with what Ezekiel says. But hold on a second. What rationality uh, rules has clearly given us throughout this video, is meant to be an internal criticism of what the most fundamentalist understanding of the Christian faith is. And guess what that means? The most fundamentalist understanding of the Christian faith thinks that Ezekiel and Genesis are both God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired, inerrant scripture. So you're stuck with that, pal. And if you're going to say that the Bible is giving us this uh, understanding of original guilt, you got to explain to me why it nowhere says that in Genesis. And we actually have other scripture that seems to give us 
um, an explanation that that is not the case. So uh, all pretty important things, I think. Let's keep trucking. And consequently, we all deserve eternal damnation. Hell, in which our eyes will be burnt from our skull. Our skins... Why, okay, this is getting out of hand. Why do we... Uh, why do we all deserve separation from God in a place that we can call hell? Why? Because we are guilty. It is such a sure thing that every individual will sin because we have a nature and environment inclined towards sin. Um, not that we're held culpable and guilty of Adam's sin. Uh, Adam's sin. And notice that my natural Christianese leads me to say Adam's sin and not Eve's sin. Why? Because there's nothing misogynistic about this. Uh, but why, why is it that we are deserving of hell? Because we all sin. Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have and all will after Paul with the exception of Jesus. Why? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God because, um, because of that, we are deserving of that judgment. Because of our sins. We are all guilty. And as my co-host and colleague, Dr. Jonathan Pritchett, recently said, and I thought it was beautiful and straightforward is, even if you want to say we're guilty of Adam's sin, guess what? With the 50 million sins we all commit in our lifetimes, adding Adam's sin on top isn't that big of a deal. We all end up sinning. So we'd be guilty and culpable anyway. But what's this business about, what's this business about, uh, about hell? Let's see what he says. This curse. You, me, and everyone else are guilty of Adam and Eve's sin of eating from a tree. And consequently, but notice again the mistake of equating we are experiencing bad stuff, we are experiencing the ramifications of the curse, with we're therefore guilty. Those are not necessarily the same thing. That's just a logical blunder. Consequently, we all deserve eternal damnation, hell in which our eyes will be burnt from our skull, our skin stripped from the bone, and our bones crushed to dust, only for us to be at once rejuvenated to experience it again and again and again forever. It's amazing to me how much more rationality rules claims to know about what the Bible says about hell than, I, than you'll almost ever hear any Christian scholar say with any degree of confidence. In fact, this, this, this extremely uh, hardcore understanding of hell, first of all, if you think that is what the Bible teaches, take it seriously. I mean, that is, I don't want to experience that. That's a darn good reason to become a Christian if that's your understanding. Secondly, uh, even very conservative Bible scholars and conservative philosophers don't understand that to be what the nature of hell is. I mean, you go with someone like um, go with someone like uh, J.P. Moreland, for example. Very conservative, very conservative scholar, and he doesn't take he takes that it's going to be eternal conscious torment, but not literal flames or your eyeballs getting crushed or whatever nonsense we have here. He doesn't believe anything like that. Um, where does that come from? It comes from imagery that's used. Perhaps it's literal. If it's literal, all the more reason to take it seriously. But most of your scholars don't take it that way. And rationality rules seems to think the only way you get out of that is if... Or if you squint real hard, you can conjure a slightly more tolerable interpretation, as is the case with Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in a form of annihilationism, and they're not the only ones. There is a growing number of people who, are, who believe in what is called conditional immortality. 
Now, here's the thing. I'm not here to defend a particular view of hell at this moment, but I do want to say, why does he think it's a slam dunk? Why? Because this is very telling. Why does rationality rules think it is a slam dunk that the Bible teaches this burning, eyes getting crushed, all these kind of horrible, weird things. Then you're rejuvenated to experience it all again, your skin melting off your bones and all of this for billions of years, and then you're just getting started or whatever. Why, why does he think that? Well, it could be that he just got that from some preachers that he saw online, because we do know that Rationality Rules watches some preachers online. At least he got some quotes for this video we're going to see in a moment. Um, but uh, where that comes from is passages like Mark chapter 9, where you have Jesus saying, uh, the, flame shall not, uh, the flame shall not be quenched, the worm shall not die. It's better to gouge out your eye and throw it from your body and go into heaven with, uh, with one eye than to go into hell with two eyes, uh, Gehenna with two eyes. Um, it's better to cut off an arm than to go to, to, and go to heaven with one arm than to go to Gehenna with two arms. It's better to cut off a leg. You get the point. Where the flame is not quenched and the worm doesn't die. Okay, that's where that comes from. Now, he thinks that the only way you escape that is to squint and try to figure it out and try to come up with some way of kind of ignoring the text and coming up with your own way of getting there. In reality, what you could do to study this more appropriately is to pick up an entry-level hermeneutics book and understand the first thing that will be on in the, in the first chapter of most of those books, which is that what you want to do is you want to try to understand the original hearer, uh, the original audience that's going to hear this message, and the original speaker or author that is writing or speaking this message, and how that author would have intended it, and how that audience in that culture at that time in history would have heard it and what they would have taken it to mean you already immediately run into some very obvious things. First of all, when Jesus is talking about hell, um, Gehenna, there are four words that are translated as hell in the Bible, which is odd to me because clearly the biblical authors intended something by, by giving different words. It seems rather lazy, or perhaps there was some sort of a reason, uh, a bias that made all these words translated uh, you know, Sheol, Hades, um, Gehenna and Tartarus, all, let's just, let's just translate them all blanketly hell. But the reality is if, if you immediately in Mark chapter nine and similar passages, what you would get is, oh, Gehenna. We know about Gehenna. If you're the original audience, oh, we know about Gehenna. Gehenna is on the south side of the, outside the south gate of Jerusalem. That, that was at one time where the apostate Jews worshiped Molech. Um, and put their children in the bellies of Molech and sacrificed them in the fire and beat drums and marched around Molech to drown out the screams of the child because the parents couldn't handle it. But guess what? It only made the whole thing that much more menacing. He's telling us that's what separation from God is like. And you immediately are on the trail to maybe he's giving us literal fire, but this is definitely imagery as well. Or the fact that his language it seems to be borrowed from the prophets about the destruction of Jerusalem where the flame was never going to die. And guess what? The flame died. It's not still there now. Jesus wasn't wrong. Jesus knew the history as every Jew would have with some of the most basic and horrific history of Jerusalem. What he's doing is he's telling you what it's going to be like to be separated from God. So this whole thing of you got to squint your eyes, I'm not defending a particular notion of hell, but what I am saying is you seem to be completely out of touch with good hermeneutics. And I say this kindly and out of touch with um, the scholarship on this, even among very, very conservative scholars. 
Um, I, let me tell you, I think that when I, when it comes to people like, we saw this with Jonathan Pritchett's response video to Cosmic Skeptic. We're seeing it now with rationality rules in this case. When they talk about philosophical ideas, they, they're more aware of what's going on and, and where the furniture of that discussion is. Um, when they talk about the Bible, it is very often just it, just a complete misunderstanding of what's going on and a complete disregard for what the text actually says. But in any case, you are condemned for the actions of an ancestor. Some Christians will say that. Many Christians will say, no, you are condemned for your sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You are condemned for the things you did. The Bible says that the son is not held responsible for the sins of his father. The father is not held responsible for the sins of his son. Um, the passages that might spring to your mind, like I'll visit the sins of the father to the third and fourth generations, are clearly referencing something that actually happened in history. And when you look at what happened, it was exactly the situation I'm describing with the child who inherits an addiction from its parents, experiencing the ramifications of what the parent did, but 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 this is just not this is just taking one strand of understanding of Christian doctrine, applying it to the whole, and then saying ditch that. When if you wanted to do this a more sensible way, what you would do is you would say there is a form there is a doctrinal position held by some Christians. Here's what it says, and I think that has major problems. And guess what, rationality rules. I would join you in that. But that, but but the title of this video is the rotten fruit of Christianity. Go to the Bible to figure out what Christianity is, and we can discuss there. Like we, like I'm trying to offer explanations right now. Now it has to be said, this is not only grotesquely immoral, but logically insane. And yet, two things. I know that this is going to impact my atheist audience, whom I love, and I have many sensible atheists in the audience. Uh, friendly discussions I've had with many of you. So as I always say, if the shoe doesn't fit, don't wear it. I'm not talking about you if this isn't you. But I'm going to give some, I'm going to, I'm going to say something now that I know that atheists listening often experience what a child does when their parents are trying to get them to take their medicine. If you have no foundation for objective morality, then to talk about what you think, even giving you everything you're saying God did in this passage, everything you're saying that God, even the stuff that I don't hold to and that many, many Christians don't hold to, and in some cases, no Christians hold to, right? If I give you all of that, guess what? You still can't call it immoral. You can say, as we saw in my response video to David Wood and uh, uh, Matt Dillahunty to their debate, what you can say is you can say within our system, of say secular humanism or whatever rationality rules holds to, um, we have this subjectively chosen goal that we want to get to that has nothing to do with anything ultimate or objective. We've decided this is what we want. And so there are objectively better and worse ways to get to this goal. That is, that's, that's fine. You can say that, but that only means that what you're calling better, worse, good, bad, moral, immoral makes sense within that system. But when you try to step out of that system and then comment on God's system, better and worse and moral and immoral mean nothing anymore because those are only phrases that are meaningful within your system where you have a subjectively chosen goal. What you're trying to do is take that subjectively chosen goal, make it a meta-ethic, step outside of your system and, and act as though it's objective. When you admit that it's not objective or ultimate, 
or I would think you would, you have to, because you have no objective standard of morality. So you, you can't even, on your view, call what's going on here. Um, even if it was 10,000 times worse than what you think it is, you still couldn't call it immoral, except within our system, we think that's immoral, but I can't say it's immoral ultimately or in reality. You, you just can't do that because that's to take something that is in your local neighborhood that you like. All you're saying, all I hear here is someone saying, I like this thing. And that over there isn't like the thing I like. And so I'm going to call the thing I don't like immoral, but it's not really immoral. I just don't like it. Well, okay. You don't have to like God's system. That's perfectly fine. But don't think that has anything to do with what's true. Does it have anything to do with truth? No, it has to do with your personal preferences and what you like and what a lot of other people like. And you know what? There's probably a lot of things you like, rationality rules, that I like too. But I thought we were talking about truth and not our personal preferences. The problem is, if you don't have objective morality, that's all you can talk about. And you're left with emotional appeals to what you think is wrong with this system. Christians in the great... Oh, by the way, he also says that it's logically, it's got these logical problems. Um, there, it's, you haven't demonstrated a single logical problem. Again, even if I give you everything you want, everything you're saying about Christianity here, you haven't presented a logical problem. You presented what you think is an intuitive reaction built on what you would have to admit is a, a, an obje a subjective moral, moral foundation, right? That only works within the neighborhood of moral preferences that you like. But, but there's nothing illogical. You haven't shown anything illogical about it even if I gave you everything you want. You know what that means? That means that this is all just rhetoric and mockery. And it's fitting that he would point to Christopher Hitchens later on, who so often didn't use logic or philosophical argumentation in his approach, but uh, rhetoric. It's very effective. Mockery is very effective. And I'm not worried about your mockery. I'm just pointing out because the mockery and the bombastic language of skeptics out there and atheists does often move people um, and, and impact people. I think it's the best weapon you've got. But if we just stuck to the logic and the rhetoric, or the logic and the philosophical argumentation or biblical argumentation, you don't have any case here. You haven't presented a logical case here. And I just want people listening to know that. This display of Stockholm Syndrome of all time defend and worship such a ghastly story and immoral monster. We are sinners we have fallen short of the glory of god, god now notice <clears throat> i don't know who that first guy was but what did he say we are sinners we have fallen short of the glory of god does that translate to we are definitely biblically culpable and guilty of adam's sin no it does not now here we have john piper john piper is uh, an interesting person to pick. You are going to find John Piper saying the kinds of things you want to say because he does believe that we have that we are culpable of Adam's sin. John Piper is a Calvinist and one of the world's most famous Calvinists. That is a deterministic Christian who affirms divine determinism. He thinks he has a quote where he says, like every time a bird falls from the sky or anything happens, it is because of the meticulous determination of God. So of course he's going to say stuff like this. And that's why I think we come back to Piper again, not just once. God planned to magnify the mercy and grace and patience and kindness and goodness and wrath and justice of his son before Adam ever existed. The Bible is clear. Well, first of all, there's actually nothing wrong with what Piper just said. He planned to... Now, we know that Piper affirms divine determinism, so... 
bound up with he planned, he meticulously determined, right? But taken just on the verbiage he just used, actually, yeah, God knew what was going to happen, so he had a plan to redeem what happened. Where does that give you the guilt and culpability on our part for what our original parents did? About the impact of Adam and Eve's disobedience. Their sin brought corruption and death to the whole world and to all their children. Again, does that mean that we are held personally guilty and culpable for what Adam and Eve did? No, what he says is their, their corruption, their sin brought corruption on the rest of the world. Yeah, the Bible is clear about that. The impact of Adam and Eve's disobedience, he says, their sin brought corruption and death on the whole world and all their children. That's right. But if you, if you would approach this with theological categories in mind, what you would have is we have a sin nature, a nature and an environment inclined towards sin because of our original parents. That doesn't translate necessarily to we are personally guilty and culpable for their sins. We commit plenty of our own. The Bible tells us that we have inherited the guilt of Adam. Through the sin of Adam, all men sinned. Okay, so that person did give Stephen what he wants. And of course, as I say, some Christians do believe that. We carry the guilt of Adam's sin. I would say that Adam can be regarded as the federal head of the human race. That is to say, he is our representative or proxy before God. So that what he does, he does as our representative. Look what scripture. Yeah, this is, I'm probably not exactly where Craig is on this issue, although I might be. Adam is our federal head. The decision he made impacted all of humanity. But Romans chapter 5, which is the passage that, that I think Rationality Rules put up on the screen a while ago and that people go to, is one of the most difficult to understand passages of scripture, whatever your position in the Bible, and probably one of the most hotly debated. But the people back then thought did think corporately, and so we can experience the ramifications of what Adam did, but and we can and we can reap the benefits of what Jesus did for us. But that is a separate question from whether we are held guilty for what Adam did. Again, uh, and I imagine rationality rules looking through, you know, the pages of YouTube trying to find someone saying exactly what he want wanted, and he found a couple of those. I think here he found another example. Sure tells us is that all of mankind are children of wrath. We are objects of the hatred of God by nature. Uh, he affirmed that all... We have a, we have a nature and uh, in environment inclined towards sin, and we stand condemned. And the Bible does talk about wrath and judgment and all those things will happen if you don't accept uh, what Christ did for you. But that is a separate question from whether we are personally held guilty of Adam's sin. Humanity, all subsequent humanity inherited from Adam both legal guilt and moral corruption. Just and that again is the Augustinian um, understanding that many Christians hold to. Read this book and believe it all. It's ironic, don't you think? I had to come back to Piper. He loved that. He loved that. Read this book. Yeah. Yeah. Read that book. Believe it all. Just don't necessarily buy what every theologian on, the, on earth says about that book or what YouTube atheists say about it. These pathetic apes lecture us on what's moral, whilst they parade the worst moral teaching of all time as if it's worthy of veneration. Compared to what? Compared to what? First of all, you've given us like the worst imaginable understanding. Let's go back to the hell thing with the crushing of the eyeballs and the melting of the flesh and all that. 
you atheists that are listening, um, do you, you've heard people like me say that there is this fundamentalist atheist crowd. They're atheist fundamentalists, right? You've heard us say that, you, that language. The reason we use that language is because what you often have, and I don't know, I frankly doubt this is the case with the rationality rules. What you often have is a, a young person who grows up in a very fundamentalist, by the way, um, fundamentalist has two senses. There is the fundamentalist in the sense that we affirm certain fundamentals of the faith. And in that sense, I'm a fundamentalist. There's another sense of fundamentalist, which um, speaks to a very um, flat wooden reading of scripture and, and text with, you know, and, and it's obviously many times easy for people to make fun of. People come out of this very, very fundamentalist background. And then what they do is, as atheists, they still think that that extreme fundamentalist understanding of a particular text is Christianity. And so they attack that. Um, this is why it is the case, though I have many wonderful young earth creationist friends, this is why it is the case that there are so many people I've not made response videos to. And many of you have said, why don't you respond to this guy or that guy or this girl or that girl? You know why? Because all they're attacking is young earth creationism all the time. Why? Because they were probably raised with young earth creationism. But that is, that is, to, this is this, um, and by the way, someone could affirm young earth creationism and not be a fundamentalist in the negative sense of that term, but that is something that often gets lumped in with this fundamentalist <clears throat> understanding. But, but this is the thing, is you, you take, the reason we say that you, you have this atheist fundamentalism is because of stuff like this that Stephen Woodford just said. He's said in this video that hell is this certain very extremely literal fire melting your skin off your bones and then you're rejuvenated and then it all starts again. Your eyes get crushed and all these kind of things. And if you don't think that, you're really having to squint to get something else. And you wonder why we say this? Why it seems like maybe you guys are acting like atheist fundamentalists when instead of looking at what the majority of biblical scholars think about this, of conservative biblical scholars, it's really telling. It's really telling. But back to your morality. Your morality doesn't help you here because it only makes sense in the subjectively chosen game you're playing. And all you're telling me is, I like this better than that. So the inflection in the voice, the depiction of babies, all this kind of stuff, I can call certain things that you're laying at God's feet that don't belong at God's feet immoral, like a human father crucifying a little baby um, I can, I can call that immoral, but guess what? All you can say is we don't like that in our system. We don't like that. And we, we call it immoral, but it's not really immoral. It's just, we don't like it. It's a tough position to defend. seems like this thing kind of got flipped around somewhere on you. To go back to the parody that opens this video, any decent human would look upon the suffering inflicted on Luna, Eowyn and Akara with disgust and would utterly condemn the immoral monster responsible. But decorate such depravity in religious garments. I would too. I would I would reject that too. And you'll get otherwise decent humans to not only pardon the immoral monster, <clears throat> but worship him. Let me let me um, interpret for you properly what he's saying there. Or let me decode what he's saying there. Give you what he should be saying. Um, he says to go back to the parody that opens this video, any decent human would look upon the suffering inflicted on Luna, Eowyn, and Akara with disgust. Yes, because it is nothing like the garden and nothing like God. 
you're talking about human parents and human children, and there are meaningful differences there. He says, but decorate such depravity in religious garments, and you'll get otherwise decent humans to not only pardon the immoral monster, but worship him. Here's the proper interpretation. Decorate it with religious garments. Provide the actual, meaningful, biblical narrative on its own terms without logical mistakes and biblical blunders, and you'll see a situation that makes sense and is biblically defensible. Because not only did you not really show anything moral, immoral about this, the actual setup with your analogy, um, even if I shared your understanding of the morality here, but you, you can't, you have no standing to call any of this immoral anyway. You just say, I don't like it. And then secondly, you didn't show anything illogical. This was all rhetoric. There wasn't any logical, there, there certainly weren't any syllogisms, but there wasn't even a, 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 a logical flow to it. It was just talking about it and parodying it in a way that isn't reflective and saying, I don't like that. Or showing that, that this would seem bad if it was a human parent. I'm just repeating myself at this point. Especially, it must be said, if you promised them great rewards for their credulity and offered just enough ambiguity for them to resist their torments of cognitive dissonance. The subtitle of Christopher Hitchens... You, you see this is rhetoric. And then he goes off to Hitchens and how religion poisons everything and, and all how awesome and wonderful Christopher Hitchens was. Um, I have a video on Hitchens that you can check out responding to him. And so just to go ahead and head off what you're going to say, I'm aware that he's dead and I'm aware that he can't respond to me. So you think it's a bit unfair for you to respond to Hitchens. I begin by telling you how much I admire Hitchens in terms of his ability as an inspired debater and an incredible uh, speaker, has a great handle on rhetoric. And I appreciate all that. Very smart, intelligent guy he was. Uh, but uh, in terms of philosophy and logic and really understanding what's being said with particularly the moral argument, I just, it was a train wreck. Um, not somebody to look up to in terms of their grasp and responses to the theistic arguments or the resurrection case. But anyway, he talks about Hitchens and he talks about Mark Twain and all these kind of things. But in the end, this is shocking to me. And maybe the reason I seem a bit more animated is because I expected more than this out of Stephen. Uh, I guess because I've listened to what he says philosophically, and even though I disagree with him and think I can show some problems with what he says, I, I at least saw where he was coming from. Here, some of it is just not, not even read. I mean, it's just, I, I don't want to be rude, but reading comprehension about the, the snake and the serpent instead of the woman. and the, I, I, I don't know. There's not much to commend this video. And um, this is why, again, when I'm talking with unbelievers, one of the first things that I want to do is say, what do you understand the biblical narrative to be? Because usually we get stuff like this. And if we can fix those, maybe uh, they can become Christians without even any necessary apologetics aside from that because they never understood the gospel message anyway. Stephen, good news. Perhaps now you can happily become a Christian because there's nothing here that, if this is what's preventing you from becoming a Christian, then I look forward to welcoming you to the fold, brother. And to the rest of you, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.